It's interesting because my father has actually been um, in hospital and at first we thought, God, this is it, you know, the final fire, oh, the worst thing that we've all been not waiting for. Um, and then all of a sudden he's had two tests and he comes back absolutely fine, having spent three weeks almost not being able to talk or breathe. So it's a very strange scenario when he's had two tests that have come back negative and all of us at home have had this wave of some ridiculous flu that we've never, ever had. I've never been out for three days in fever, ever, right? Yeah, I mean, and how are you, how are you doing now? Because it sounds like you've been quite close to the, um, to the virus. Yeah, I think what's been really fascinating for me is that um, up until a certain point, it feels as if it's somebody else's issue, right? And I've, and I've been sort of homing in the uh, comparison between COVID and climate change in much the same way, that it feels very much like the it's everybody else's issue but my own. And as soon as it became personal for me, of course, it being my father, um, not that it changed my perspective that much, like I suppose the prime minister having himself got it. Um, I think what it shifted in me was this identity crisis, you know, this this moment where it's this existential moment in humanity that we could all quite literally be almost wiped out. And it's like a rite of passage, the kind of the knowledge that when you go through a rite of passage, you may not return, like kind of like a Spartan warrior being sent out to go and get the you know, ear of a lion or something, <laughs> and then, you know, may not come back. So it really does feel very much like that. But of course, at home, um, you know, I'm quite lucky. Hi, I'm Paul Miller, and this is Digital Workplace Impact, where we investigate and explore the ideas, practices, and people that are impacting the new digital worlds where we all work. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy covering all aspects of the evolving digital workplace industry through membership, benchmarking, and boutique consulting services. And if you'd like more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. So today's episode is a, well, kind of wide ranging, quite an exotic um, uh, conversation with Dr. Tia Kansara. Um, She's the CEO of Replenish Earth, which is a collective all around climate change in the global commons. She's advised governments, international institutions, She's won awards for being incredibly successful at lots of things at a very young age. And she's really quite an extraordinary human being. Um, We got into things to do with ecology, climate change and work. And how could work and the digital world of work evolve and adapt in ways that are beneficial for the environment so it's kind of like one of those win-win things where we make changes enabled through changes in how we work digitally that are also beneficial to the wider mission that kind of every organization has around uh, the topic of climate change and i just wanted to kind of flag up as we get into this that there is a new Uh, movement launched by DWG called the DWG Work Miles Movement, 
join the movement that's going nowhere, as we cleverly put it. And it's really saying that how do we kind of embed the beneficial effects that have come from having far less work-based travel, including commuting, through the COVID-19 virus? And how do we embed that into the way that organisations work so that we can preserve some of the fact that you can now see the Himalayas from Delhi. You can see dolphins in the canals of Venice. And at least until the traffic picked up in China, you were able to see blue skies for the first time. And everybody wants that. So it's the Work Miles Movement. You can find it on the digitalworkplacegroup.com site. Uh, Join the DWG Work Miles Movement or just put that into Google. It really says set a work miles budget for your organization, just like you do financial budgets. So we did it in DWG. We did a guesstimate of how many miles we traveled last year in 2019, and we decided we would reduce it 50% for 2020. We've already had a head start because of nobody being able to travel pretty much anywhere for quite a while. Um, doesn't have to be 50%. You could start with 5%, 10%, 1%. Particularly for large organizations, that will have a large impact. And by doing that, you can then cascade the work miles budgets throughout the organization to departments and teams and individuals. And yeah, you can start to offset the fact that miles walked won't count against it or miles cycled won't count against it. Anyway, really encourage you to do that. So sit back, think about what your work, your own work and your organization's work might look like if you really wanted to use the window of opportunities that's opened up for us now. Great. So um, this is going to be a good one. I'm not quite sure where the conversation today is going to go, but I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Tia Kansara. Um, Tia, I mean, Tia's biog is fantastic. So I'm going to try and cut down and read out only the bits that I can get away with. Um, Tia is a multi-award winning entrepreneur economist. She's the youngest person ever to receive the Royal Institute British Architects Honorary Fellowship. She is the co-founder of Kansara Hackney Limited, the first ISO certified sustainable lifestyle consultancy. And she's the CEO of Replenish Earth, a cause and a collective action uh, body to look at the protecting the global commons. She was... um, Rated in the top 100 most influential leaders in tech by the Financial Times. Um, And her clients include Coca-Cola, Bloomberg, the European Commission, Forbes, Formula One, MIT and Siemens. Um, And aside from being the UCL Bartlett's ambassador to the Gulf region and advisor to the Economic Times of India, she's an economist and future cities thought leader. Um, she got her PhD at University College London, and I'm just going to kind of skip to the bit where it says that you translated the in you translated the Sanskrit works of Lord Swami <laughs> Narayan's Shik Shab, 
shiksha, shiksha patri into Japanese. Shiksha patri. Is, is, is that the sort of thing you just do in your spare time because you're a bit bored? <laughs> oh, that's, that's really fun. Well, well, firstly, thank you so much for inviting me in. And I'm so grateful to have this time, um, you know, just to deep dive with you. And, you know, there is this bigger question um, on what is it that matters most to us? And I think when I was a kid, I remember turning 18 and I wanted to walk the paths of some of the most incredible monks that, you know, saints and sages and ask lots of big questions, very big existential questions that were coming to me when I was a kid. And being part of a Hindu community, um, that was part of my upbringing. We were brought up with Sanskrit, beautiful mantras and prayers. Uh, our first uh, dharmic kind of, you know, rites of passage is in accepting Ahimsa Paramodharam, which is the first uh, method of, of uh, right, righteous method of living your life. And it's, um, it's all about nonviolence. So yeah, Sanskrit sort of became a very intrinsic part of my life. And that then is expressed when I'm in Japan and teaching English and thinking, you know what? Um, now that I, you know, I, I love Japanese and I think it's such a beautiful culture that has this Shinto base with the layer of Buddhism and Christianity, that there is this connection with Shintoism and the Hindu gods and goddesses. So, of course, the translation of this wisdom practice into Japanese came quite naturally for me because I was also curious about you know, the Jap Japanese culture. So, so bridging those two was, yeah, very exciting. Yeah, spare time activity. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I'm going to ask another question about Sanskrit before, and and just for those people listening, wondering, isn't this the Digital Workplace Impact podcast <laughs> where we look at changes in work? We we are going to get into that, and and the, and this will all start to make sense. Um, but what's I mean, Sanskrit's fascinating language, isn't it? Because it to me it reminds me of I mean I studied Latin at school, and then have. I've been sort of absorbed throughout my life by the Bhagavad Gita, having gone to India when I was 18. And there is in Sanskrit almost like hidden knowledge um, in, in the kind of words. Totally. Is it, so, totally. Yeah. It's a very secretive language. And, you know, many don't mm. really uh, get into the nuts and bolts of the linguistic and the semantic grammar, the grammatical um patterns of the language it's one of the most complex languages that humanity knows so far we have consonant conjugations that will get your tongue in roller coasters and it's a really fascinating ability to grip parts of the brain so neuroscientifically like the parts of the brain that are identifying different sounds are actually lit up when these sounds are made but the use of this sanskrit um sort of foundational Mm. appreciation for word and the yoga of the mouth right um mm. just as, as as we kind of identify with the yoga of the body um yoga is connection connection with the body connection with the outer being and the moment that we sort of connect on a sort of a digital um commons perspective yoga is the human commons it's that ability to connect with the global commons in 
spirit but also in physical body it deep breaths uh, mm. the moment that we breathe in we're bringing in part of the earth into us and i think that this dislocation that we are experiencing in our society today of the individual is a very strange disconnection with nature given that we are 100% nature even though we may look at our cities and our buildings and our computers and as non-human as non um as non-nature but the reality is that that it all comes back to nature the difference is that in this you know inquiry of the self or using you know sanskrit as a language we get to explore a number of different bridges sanskrit scholars make very good mathematicians and mathematicians make very good computer scientists and that's one of the reasons why india has the highest number most probably because of its population i i appreciate that bias um bias of density but there is a high number of of mathematicians as well as computer scientists and the it industry has pretty much um you know provided a huge amount of gdp to india because of that and and just to kind of remind people who are listening this this is uh, an episode around ecology and work and tia and i are recording this in the middle of the well it's kind of early may uh, we're both in the uk the country's in a slightly less locked down state than we were a few days ago but we're still sort of kind of very limited in what we can do and 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 we decided to have this conversation before the covid-19 virus had really kind of absorbed us all in ways that we'd rather not have happening mostly um and it's really about the relationship between ecology and the changes in work which have been happening at a an unprecedented level but what i was going to say before we get into that that your point about sanskrit complexity mathematician software it's 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 that relationship isn't it that if you're designing these these digital worlds that we work and live in you need to have that ability to kind of see and understand and navigate complexity totally. is that's what you're saying yeah, yeah. Totally. and i and i think that that's part of like this sort of noetic evolution that we've had um over time where it allows us to adapt to change right and change is consistent that's the one thing that's never going to change is change itself hmm. but you know according to this noetic evolution our physical surroundings whether it's our rooms our work environments you know covid is now putting us into our homes right um and we're sort of homebound so this sort of multisensory immersive experience is what changes the brain so there is a big rewriting of our code epigenetically and you know i really identify with the challenges that people have right now in facing those hmm yeah and one of the things that we were chatting about before we got started was the connection between the virus and climate change and what i'm interested in getting your views on i suppose is what the relationship between climate changes and changes in how we work because there's an there's a, a huge opportunity but can you just for the sake of people listening just explain your role with replenish and and what replenish Mm, does absolutely you know i really do um believe firstly that we're experiencing the greatest migration of our humanity towards a world that honors and protects the global commons 
you know, in India, a friend of mine sent me a message and said, this is the first time that they've been able to see the Himalayas in Delhi. And in Venice, they've been talking about dolphins. And, you know, it's, it's one of those moments in life that we really get to see the other, the other people around the world that are experiencing something the same as us. And it's very rare to have a global experience like this. We talk about, you know, we and them, right? So us, we're going through this, but, you know, is somebody in China going through this? Is somebody in India going through this? And maybe, most probably they're not. Right. But with COVID, that is definitely the case. So with Replenish Earth, it's a philosophy of living in harmony with nature. I identified with capitalism um, not being what I really wanted to be part of when I was a kid, picking up rubbish as a litter buster during detention at school. And I started asking these questions when I was six. You know, where's all this rubbish coming from? Of course, I don't want to collect it as a litter buster. You know, make my life a little bit easier, please. And can't you pick up your own rubbish? And I question and question, where is all of this rubbish coming from? And capital accumulation for me is summarized as the capital that's accumulated on your landfill site. So ultimately, it's about, you know, replenishing the planet, giving more than we take and understanding that humans are indigenous to Earth, interdependent on this body, whatever you call that body, whether it's your body and all of your organs interdependent on each other um, or, or the planet and how we interact with that planet. And I feel that Replenish Earth sort of, you know, we've been creating products and services that are all about sustainability and being a forethought rather than an afterthought. None of this sort of, oh, let's open a CSR department once we've made our money and plundered the environment. It's how about we never do that in the first place? So it's about creating a generalism, right? Because specialism, which is sort of educated through university, brings you to a very specific destination. And I think once you have a destination, you know, you, one can find it very difficult to live in the unfolding, the unknowable unknowns, right? And the more that those things are defined for us, the, the difficult, the more difficult it becomes to transition from whether it's fossil fuels or older ways and structures of working, um, you know, in, in the way that we see the future of work, right? If we only continue to do exactly the same thing, expecting a different result, then we're in trouble. Hmm. And it's, really fascinating one of the things i found fascinating is that the the impact of the virus on work i I mean it's had lots of impacts but one of them is to radically reduce the amount of work travel for everybody including commuting um obviously it's radically reduced all forms of travel particularly airline travel it's um caused um uh, this reconnecting and rehumanizing of organizations. So if I think of the most common things that people in leadership positions have said to me is I feel closer to the people in the business because we're all in the same boat. Essentially, we're all either at home or if you're essential workers um, doing what you were doing before. Um, and um, they're talking about empathy, humanity, purpose, um, prior to COVID-19, organisations were opening up and start, starting to say, we actually don't really know what our purpose is anymore. And I've had intergovernmental institutions say that to me. We were set up just after the Second World War. You know, we knew what we were about. We knew where we we're going. And they all came back to climate change. And I suppose what I'm asking 
now and uh, is what's the opportunity that's opened up to change work in ways that are actually beneficial to the climate change agenda so it, it isn't just as you've said you know a a maybe quite extensive corporate social responsibility activity for the organization but it's really at the heart of the way the organization works what would it be like if climate uh, preservation reorientation re-relating became at the heart and and what's the kind of opportunity because if we change work we're going to change the lives of billions of people just before lockdown i was considering a 10-part docuseries on the future of work and you know we were going to bring in a very well-known uh production company together with an investor that was going to um give us a platform for it and it got me thinking a lot i interviewed 40 people you know just leading up to covid um about the future of work what does it mean what are the different ways that we need to build contingencies for the work that we're doing um some of the themes were really fascinating. Of course, people talked about the future of work being the future shift of value over time. What is it that people value? And it's interesting today where at home, perhaps we're spending more time with our children. Perhaps we're spending more time learning about what they're learning about normally where in a, a sort of an automated uh, system, I call it the grip of death because that's exactly what mortgage means. And it's a hamster wheel that stops us right now in our tracks, we step off the hamster wheel and we question, is this what we want? Is this how we want it? And it's really that that question of where are we going? Do we need to do the things that we've been doing? And of course, if I've been spending, if I was in Mexico City, spending two and a half hours getting into the city to go and do, you know, what I call work, you know, whether, the, whether it's labor or not labor, transport has become such a, an integral part of our lives. And Many cities from around the world, like Detroit, for example, have been designed for cars, not for pedestrians. Pedestrians have been, you know, the second class citizen of, of society. Uh, but of course, the majority of people, if it were by, by the number of people, cities have been designed, um, you know, with a skew towards cars and the, the society that actually can afford to have uh, vehicles, like if you look at India. Um, Mayor... Uh, Penaloza of Bogota introduced the, the the BRT and started to really transform uh, the Colombian methodology of what does it mean to be an inclusive city, uh, an inclusive place. What's the BRT? Um, bus rapid transport system. It's where you have the sort of you know um, a lane very specifically for buses, a lane specifically for cyclists. You know, and there, there's a sort of integrated mm. approach to what does it mean to live in a kind of like a socially friendly manner where it's not about creating exclusivity in the city, but inclusivity in the city. And it brings me back to what do we value most and what matters most to us in our lives if we were to take, you know, quite a morbid view. But let's say if I were to, to, to die at the age of 75, then the number of hours that I could relatively produce something, I would you know, there might be some things that I would like to consider. I wonder how many people actually ask these questions as they're starting off, maybe when they're 18, you know, the, the, the date that you become an adult enough to make votes and make decisions and do all of these things that prior to the age of 18, 
you know, you weren't given a vote and you weren't given the opportunity to do very specific things. So I'm quite curious, you know, at what stage in our humanity are we educating and creating infrastructure, whether it's physical or social or intellectual or emotional or spiritual, where we can really guide people to be able to step out of whatever the insecurity and fear is of the actual society that we're living in and into a place of guidance from within. Because I think that's where this piece of intuition comes in. And so the future of work for me is this relationship with, you know, ourselves because we are nature. And secondly, with the outside world, because we're seeing so much feedback today of just being at home on the environment, the number of people that are talking about, oh, wow, look at the stars and look at the sky is so clear. And there isn't this fog over, um, you know, Beijing and, you know, such a, a lovely way to be. And people are walking down the street because that's the one hour that you get that you're allowed to go out because um, you you know want to make the most of it. And of course, you're out either with your dogs, or your children, your you know parents or whoever else. So it's a very interesting uh, point of introspection to recognize what our relationship is with the outside world. Um, and that outside world being um, social uh, fabric, but also the outside world being what does what is it from the older system of work that we'd like to continue and bring to post-COVID reality? Because if we're not already thinking about the contingencies of having pandemic situations again, that we're not, you know, in a in a um, a resolution phase of recognizing what wasn't working and understanding what we need to unlearn, then I think we've got more problems than we thought we did. Yeah. And, and I mean, one thing that, that strikes me is that if you, you know, if you think the virus is a naturally occurring phenomenon, it's, it's alive. Um, climate, nature is alive. Climate events are a natural occurring phenomenon so these are all, if you like, life affecting life. Um, and if you start to think about the way that work has been completely uh, turned upside down, I mean, it, 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 it completely amazes me because, you know, I was in New York at a meeting with about 30 people in January. You know, we were buzzing around the city. That It was like a sense that we were changing things and trying to create things. And then only a matter of weeks later, everything is paused, everything's stopped. And I think leaders have got a real opportunity at the moment when they're looking at what they might call business resilience, business continuity, recalibrating the organisation, how do we want to work a, to navigate through what we're dealing with now, but also in case there are spikes, but also for whatever comes next. Um, and it seems to me that if we can start to affect the way that organisations work, their deeper purpose, but also the physicality of work. Um, obviously, if you're working remotely, working from home, it has huge climate benefits but it also has climate impacts technology has its own you know climatic impact it's not uh which is not trivial but it does seem like there's a real uh opportunity at the moment to to recalibrate work in this way um so i'm just kind of thinking just trying to sort of bring it back to a particular example so if you're say a large fashion retailer um and you're trying to think through 
the opportunity for you and obviously fashion as an industry has been you know covered quite a lot because of its impact on climate what would be your kind of recommendations of what people who've got a chance to influence the future of that organization where what's the opportunity for them to to kind of recalibrate their own ways of being that that are far far more in tune with the with the natural world mm-hmm. i think values change and we move to a creative space for the emerging needs and and let's say fashion trends of course um I think there are some things that speed up ecological degradation, like particular dyes, chemical leaching into the water systems. I remember, um, you know, I think we need to know how bad it is. Like, what's your waste audit? What's the first thing that you would want to know is how, like, how, what are the externalities to the work that you're doing? What's the negative impact on the environment? What's your waste audit showing you? You know, we've done these sort of audits um, and, and we've found certain products are heavy, in supply chains of, let's say, Gucci or Burberry, Ermangel, um, Dezenia and Prada. And I remember doing a project with them as one of their youngest advisors to the uh, United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, uh, where we mapped out the impact of, of the industry's waste. And what we recognized was at very specific areas that we could have an impact, but that's where the gap was. So it's really understanding not only what your audit is and the impact that you have, environmental impact assessments, et cetera, but then recognizing, you know, where, you know, what are the gaps and what are the the kind of like Pareto efficient places that you can put your finger and then prioritize those activities that can really help your business. Um, You know, then a kind of like a true environmental assessment might be how, how you would sequester the harm that you're doing to the environment, right? So we look, we look a lot about, um, the kind of carbon sequestration, but also there's there are other greenhouse gases, and I'm sure there are other things that we haven't even picked up on. But I really like the, um, the work um, of the Arawakas in the Sierra Nevada in Colombia. I was invited to meet them in 2016, and they're a 4,000-year-old tribe that are still in situ. And I remember sitting down with a mamo talking about, you know, my work and it's being translated to him. And he told me that it's very important to give back whatever it is that you're taking to give it back, but with even more. And I was trying to figure that out. You know, we, we eat, we need to survive. But at what point do our externalities become negative? And where is it our responsibility to use, say, foresight, moonshots to understand how to mitigate the potential nightmares of the future? And not only that, like, you know, a lot of these political cycles are, are too short for those kinds of foresight planning tools or moonshots. Um, how many cycles would it have taken for a group of scientists to get to the moon, for example? Right. So I think for a lot of businesses, whether they're in the fashion industry or any other industry, it's important to remain agile. I just don't see many companies today that are agile to adjusting their business models to climate change. And seriously, if you're setting up a company that is in a grief-stricken land, uh, like the bushes in Australia, there's only one thing, you know, that I can probably call you, and that is unprepared. Yeah, and and, and I'm thinking about Microsoft. Um, so they, you know, a few months ago, their CEO, Satya Nadella, said that they were um, committed to not only go back to carbon neutral, um, but also to 
repay all that they had consumed during their lifetime. And 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 what's your approach to that? Do you sort of see that as a just as a kind of positive thing, or do you see it as a kind of manipulative thing? I mean, there's obviously so much cynicism around cynicism around you know organisations. Well, they're doing that mm. because of X. I often think they're doing it because of X, Y, and Z. And actually, there can be self-interest and um, greater good. At, 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 working together but what's your what's your feeling about that i I think it's a very interesting question you know is it their self-interest to look good to show everybody that they can spend a huge amount of money on effectively reducing any negative impact on the environment um we often forget that just paying to have let's say a trillion trees planted on your behalf doesn't give you you know multi-generational trees that have over the course of their lives sequestered whatever to the environment so there's no um there's no equal measure there but what i do feel is really fascinating is leadership that allows us from what is effectively a militarizational economy like if we look at a lot of our economic development it has been because of wars and this is the first time that we're in a pandemic situation where so much of this questioning has come without a war environment. Um, so it's a really mm. fascinating mm. moment in our history to recognize that there are companies that need to shift towards that kind of purpose and recognize the impact that they have so that maybe we don't point fingers at them. In doing so, perhaps what they're doing is creating a kind of a humility. I think there's there's some beauty in the humility of saying, hey, look, putting our hands up. Yes, we have. We're going to do something about it. This is our first step. It may not be the only thing that we do. And mm. there may be many other things that we learn from this one experiment or having, you know, paid up, uh, you know, having sequestered like the entirety of our organization, but they don't know what happens with every single product that they've created. Like how many Microsoft computers, packages, organizational, uh, you know, remnants are there in the legacy of Microsoft outside of Microsoft's mm. control. There's only a certain amount that they can control, but everything that has left their organization is now in the hands of or in a landfill site and or. So what are they going to do about those? And if I were working on this project with Microsoft, that would be one of my questions. Mm. And if we are entering a, a, a period which I think we're already in, which is all about, in my mind, it's all about healing and repair, Um I, I think that, and I, this is not my idea, but we're, we're living in an era which is about healing the damage that we've done to ourselves and, and to the planet. And, and you know, um, that will take decades, centuries to do that. Um, but, you know, there's always the possibility of starting right now. And I think what's fascinating, and I've never known it in having worked with large organisations for the last 30 years, that there's been a period, a moment where they were able to pause, go home, the CEOs are all at home, all the, all the, all the C-suites are all at home, everybody's in pretty much the same situation, and, and ask themselves, so when we, when we return to some version of non-locked-down work, what do we want that to be like? And of course, they're already pretty much agreed that they won't go back to large centralised offices in urban centres 
Now, the argument is that they won't go back because of the health hazards of it. But they're also thinking, because we don't need to. We've discovered we don't need to. Now, that allows, and the Barclays CEO was saying this, maybe we can reinvigorate all of the high street branches that we sort of felt like we needed to sell off and move people from who would have been coming into London or Manchester or Birmingham and and relocate them closer to where they live, then feeding the local economy. Um, And all of a sudden, these really radical ideas become possible. One of the things that, you know, on a small scale, I decided to do as CEO of a company, there's 120 people um, in, in the digital workplace group, we decide, I decided we would look at how many miles did we travel as a company. We don't have offices. It, we used to physically in London, New York until seven years ago. But we, So we worked out how many miles we travelled last year. And we've, so we've now reduced our work miles budget for 2020 to, to 50% of that. And we've launched a, a movement called the Work Miles Movement, which is had organizations signing up to it and what it says is find out how many miles you traveled last year including commuting and set a budget like you would a financial budget for 2020 you already got a credit because you've had a couple of months of very little travel and 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 cascade it as you do financial budgets through the company and through the organization so we've committed to 50 percent below 2019 and we're going to commit to five percent reduction minimum year on year up to 2030 um and i'm considering never flying for work again um and if if it's not never it will be rarely um and the driver for me is that you know we can affect i can affect the way my company works and maybe through the work miles movement which is subtitled the movement that's going nowhere um, you know, we can actually affect the way that organisations allocate work travel. Now, you've got to kind of get into issues around. So if you walk, you can get a credit. So it's, it needs kind of nuances and obviously certain forms of travel, are, 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 you know, are, are less harmful than others. But I feel like there's a real opportunity um, to, to influence organisations like that. I think so. I think there's a real opportunity to have a conversation about what a lot of companies are actually doing and where do they feel. It's like you mentioned trauma before, and I think that trauma is a really interesting topic, and a lot of that trauma is related to a very specific mindset. So I call wisdom learning without the trauma. It's the you know, the kind of emotional charge that you get when you went through something really awful and then you sort of dissipate that the, the emotions that are charged up on it have dissipated. And it's nowhere near the sort of like, you know, the difficulty of what it was before because of the learnings that you have, right? So it is, it's a really interesting question of what kind of detraumatization is required within society because ultimately whatever our needs are are those that will be demanded in products and services that we buy because they're reinforcing whatever that insecurity is or that need is right but it's up to us whether we decide that that's a need and it's a positive thing or it's an insecurity and it's created on our behalf so that's a challenge i think that a lot of society has because of that and if you were sitting down and 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 it was a a C-suite of a 
large organization asking you for advice and they were saying so tia what what we we, we want to change what are the practical steps that you think we should we could take now that um what you know what's your advice to us um and how does that how does this kind of digitization of work how could that support us in this Hmm. i think that's a very big big question um i think some of our our main challenges are you know decisions and how do we create and make those decisions how do we understand a situation um better so that we can be present to what's really unfolding and i think that many of the answers that we are looking for are from questions that may not be the best questions that we could be asking so if we really want to lead ourselves into a much more um i feel i feel like there's an artistic process here that's emerging um and that is very much about the emergence like everything that i know is in my own imagination but how do i know to step into the imagination of something better i didn't know that right so if i if i work on my consciousness and de-traumatize myself then i'm almost at the same time de-traumatizing my family because i will have a knock-on effect with my family and my family will then have a knock-on effect with the community and it's sort of like grows wider because of these connections socially that we have as humans but i also recognize that my imagination is never going to be as good as the imagination of of the greater you know society or community and i feel that that's the kind of influence that we're in and that reinforces our behaviors so where can we ask very different questions to identify areas that we may not have been prepared for but because we don't know about them we sort of like shun them as not important or are fearful of them because we don't know the end of them the destination that it would take you on and i think that that kind of fear needs to be named and acknowledged because then the 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 societal the corporate amygdala would maybe relax a bit and allow for mm. you know the fear to lead to intuition rather than reinforcing behaviors that have been so um traumatizing yeah and i and i was i can't remember the company but i was hearing about a ceo um uh who was using uh kind of collaborative technology that allows you to connect with everybody in the company and and he was asking he asked people kind of three really simple questions and it was along the lines of what have you learned that you want mm. to keep sort of what's changed that you want to keep um what are you missing that you want back and and sort of where can we kind of innovate it was that kind of idea it's kind of what what things have we kind of have been experienced that we can retain where do we want to kind of revert where there's maybe grief or loss of something i mean i mean i'm missing my colleagues i haven't seen them for a couple of months um you know in a physical sense um i don't want to never see them again um and 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 but on the other hand there's also uh, you know the innovate i suppose bit would be but let's not travel as a company as we have in the past and i think that is quite a, uh an interesting way it's occurring to me that organizations could be having that very simple dialogue at the moment um because they're, they're they're making profound changes to the way that they work. 
I think so. I think I think we're all sort of like, you know, creating that question of how do we want to be working and where do we want to be spending our life force, you know, the energy that that dissipates mm. over time. How's the how's the whole um virus affected your work i think i have you know after traveling to 90 countries and pretty much spending a lot of my time digitally in connection over what period of time did you travel to travel over what period of time did you travel to 90 countries i started when i was six oh right okay (laughs) right um just by virtue of my interest i Mm. suppose and the work okay the direction that it's taking me on um but yeah, the I'm just really grateful that I had the chance to do that. And I was always on this crazy adventure, just wanted to see more, do more, be more. And I kind of appreciate it now. Um, not only because I've got a digital platform community of people around the world, right? Imagine if I knew at least one person in 90 countries. That's a lot of people and different communities to be connected with. And so I'm just humbled to the experiences of so many people around the world. And a lot of my work has been digital. I remember when I was in Japan in 2004 and five, where when I first arrived there, Skype, I think was available, sort of like a voiceover internet protocol was taking shape. And, you know, it it was something, something or other, where I was trying to get my family onto video conferencing and it just, wouldn't happen because for them it was just such a weird thing and I was I was I found it so frustrating but then you know I recognized that I you know I've kind of taken my digital fill of proximity um, very differently to many other people I've always been missing someone or something right at the moment that I left uh, that I leave England and I'm in Japan and I then have made and created friends over two and a half years and now subsequently over half of my life of being immersed in Japanese culture that there is you know when I'm in Japan I'm missing other people in Italy or when I'm in Italy I'm missing people in California so there's 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 the eternal situation of of um (laughs) missing Mm. but then there's also this connection that has allowed me to develop this sort of digital uh work platform and I think I've been part of these communities uh, one in which uh, where I transitioned the community as a as a transition lead, but also a chair. And at any one given time, I was speaking across 12 plus time zones. And it was really transformative of my mindset. And I think for me, this has been my normal for mm. more than 15, 20 years now that I'm sort of, yeah, I, it, it, maybe it hasn't affected me in that I have to work digitally um what where it has affected me most is you know of course i was going to be working on an mba program with the indian institute of technology i was going to be in india at this time um and there are a number of projects which of course with the the ease of being able to work globally with that kind of human commons um i could still do a lot of that online and actually saves me a hell of a lot of money and a hell of a lot of time not having to travel to go there Mm. so this is the first time i spent more than four months in the country and you know i was sitting back and thinking wow i'm so productive (laughs) yeah and it's it's 
it's and I've heard so many conversations where people are saying that 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 because they've they've not had to travel that yet I mean obviously it's come with lots of stress obviously people have been um, you and I were talking about you know personal impacts that the virus has had you know and um you know sharing your stories of your own experiences and 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 your dad and and what he's come through and thankfully doing well and um you know i've personally also been affected by it directly and um um you know i think there's there's something about being able to hold on to this greater proximity that it's given people in work to be with the people that they care about and love most i mean yeah nobody wants the kids at home i don't think without going to school forever unless you're into homeschooling but then homeschoolers usually meet up with lots of other homeschoolers so they've been socially isolated homeschoolers which i think has been part of the problem um where am i going with this i I suppose it's it's um uh holding on to those characteristics and allowing the technology to connect um i i I heard an interview with gina rimetti who's the uh, chairman of ibm last week and she was talking about her own experience of feeling more connected to people inside IBM now that they'd gone fully virtual than she was before because there's no sort of kind of us and them everybody's in in the sort of same um, same same boat virtual sphere yeah 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 yeah. I seem to have not been asking you a lot of questions. I keep sort of intending to ask you questions and then just make a statement <laughs> and then just wait for you to, to sort of pick it up. And I also, I'm sorry, because I think some of the questions I've asked you have been like unbelievably difficult. It's like, why are you asking that question, Paul? You know, how on earth does <laughs> T are supposed to? That wasn't even on the list of questions you sent her. <laughs> you know, I really like, I, I feel that true conversations are, the opportunity to go for a walk in somebody else's life and brain <laughs> mm. and you know they, they can be you know question-led but often they're a dialogue and not a monologue uh, they're an opportunity to really understand um of course if if it's a spotlight on a person i appreciate that but you know often we we get to develop something i think carl jung spoke about this i'm not too sure don't quote me but it was about the third is it the third brain or the third mind it was the culmination of two people speaking that would lead to the third idea that would mm. never have come about had the two people not have been speaking. Mm. So, you know, and, and I'm really curious about what happens when you've got so many other people through the podcast listening, mm. ha- also having the same conversation, but <clears throat> kind of got their own interjections and I'm like, Oh, you know, you didn't say this or what about that bit? And Oh gosh, I was reading about this like just yesterday or, mm. you know, I was having this interview with, with Gina myself and yes she said that to me personally so yeah I get get the point on that for um I think that there is a, a beautiful opportunity today to connect um that human commons that I mentioned earlier and mm. that is unlike any other time of our history but possibly this is the one time that we've all been online the most that we've ever been probably in the entirety of our existence and I think with this layer of the digital communication will become this referencing of almost like this kind of recognition of what the community feels like when it's this virtual. Yeah, and and the and I, I, what I would say is that the technology has really 
shown companies. I mean, we said that the digital workplace became the essential workplace because, you know, if in the counter scenario we were prevented going mostly into physical workplaces but were left in digital workplaces, if we were told we couldn't go into digital workplaces and could only go into physical workplaces, kind of work, most work stops in that scenario. So, in fact, we've been thrown back on something that actually has worked um, pretty well and probably has never been tested in this. We, you know, we didn't kind of game this idea and see how would the world do if everybody was, you know, a third of the world or more was in lockdown at any one time. And and actually it's performed well. And what I would say is that organisations should, you know, realise that the technology is there for you. It can enable you. It can connect you. People can collaborate in a way that they can't physically. You can't have everybody come to your physical headquarters, but they can come to your digital headquarters. And, and, and in the same way, the world can connect in that way. And and I'm also kind of struck by what you said that, you know, normally really dramatic, ra- rapid change comes out of war because that's been the sort of markers of human history. I mean, obviously, there have been pandemics in the past which had their own effect, but this one... it isn't isn't a war and i personally don't like all the war analogy about the virus you've got to fight it than this and this, you know it's going to battle it's 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 a problem to solve it's a puzzle to solve it's alive and we want to resolve it in a way that's beneficial for everything that's alive including us um but um you know, this in a way is a, a sort of window of opportunity. And I think you said that. I think you talked in before about the, you know, it's like an initiation, a right passage. I wonder if it is for organisations. Um, mm. That would be very interesting. Yeah. What's your organisational right of passage? I'm going to have to try and end this conversation somehow, Tia. But, um, <laughs> um, and, and, and the conversation, the question I always ask at the end of conversation um, is, is what's, a, what's a perfect working day for you? Ooh. Well, I really like mind, body, spirit work. So a day, um, you know, a morning perhaps to do some reflection, you know, like reflective consciousness. Um, I love doing body work. So any kind of strengthening my body with energy practices like Tai Chi, Kung Fu, I adore uh, yoga, uh, meditation, breath work, like the kind of Pranayam breath work, um, and then creating and imagining and designing. And of course, there is the spending a little bit of time with my niece and my nephew and just being in the unfolding now where I have no idea what they're going to do next. And it's absolutely fine. It's like this sort of the improv of life, the more in that stage of improv where it's just whatever comes up, we're ready. It's a yes. And to life. I think that's a perfect day. Mm, Fantastic. And anything you'd like to say before we, before we end? Yeah, I think we often, ask a lot of questions with regards to ourselves and you know we can put our attention absolutely anywhere at the moment of course that attention may be on ourselves and I really invite all of the listeners to have a moment where they can put their attention in different places different ways turn it upside down you know inside out and really get the edges of their own development 
um, through throughout this process because as much as it is a very tough and difficult time, of course, my father was in hospital himself. We thought that we were never going to get to see my dad again. And that made it very personal. And of course, there is the, it doesn't matter how many years of coaching and de-trauma work and healing work that you may have done. Um, nothing can really prepare you for the emergency emotional situation that one could be in. Of course, I felt very frozen. And we have no idea what's around the corner. All we can do is to be ready for it. And that preparedness requires being present in what's emerging and just, you know, all of it, however it is, good, bad and ugly, just know that it's, it is what it is and it's okay. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be frustrated. Um, and that's, that's the time that we're in. It's okay for, for us, you, me and everyone to say, I don't know. Yeah. And I think, uh, uh, you know, what, that's the word that I've heard most organizations talking about, on a cultural level that they felt is empathetic, listening, uh, more human. And I haven't met any organisation that says when things somewhat kind of relax or we move to whatever's next, that we want to lose that. I haven't heard anybody saying we want to become less empathetic, less listening, less human. And um, Tia, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you. And um, Absolutely, Paul. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading businesses and public institutions to advance their intranets and broader digital workplaces through benchmarking, research and practitioner expertise. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. And if you'd like to listen to previous episodes of the show, go to digitalworkplacegroup.com forward slash DWG underscore score podcast. This is Paul Miller wishing you well until next time.